Um, here's where I want to start, because we're going to kind of jump right in. When I got saved, I was in high school. I was 16 years old, and um, I ended up getting saved into a, a charismatic uh, church, the kind of the, the, the um, a charismatic movement. And, um, you know, I, when you get saved, and maybe some of you are still in, in kind of this process, I started to kind of learn the lingo or, or uh, you know, some of the, the things that would be said, the language and, and, and verses or whatever it is that a lot of people use in, in commonplace, right? So um, some of the language that would be used now, like I think of and I go, if my unsafe friends heard that, they would think I'm crazy. Like you start to learn. I remember hearing this for the first time when someone said, I'm just on fire for the Lord. And I go, what does that mean? Okay. Um, we just use language that as Christians we're so used to that the world's like, what are you talking about, you psycho? And so um, one of the things that I really started to learn um, was like there would be certain verses that everyone kind of knew, right? Um, and, and, and usually they didn't know exactly where it was, but they'd quote like, the Lord has a plan for you, plans to prosper you. And they knew it was somewhere in there. So there's that Jeremiah 29, 11 or, or Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. And so there's these kind of verses that people knew. Of course, John 3, 16, whatever it was. Well, one of those passages, um, a big chunk of scripture, it was actually a whole chapter that was kind of used a lot was uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and it was kind of called this hall of faith, or this, this, this the book, um, within this book, there's this chapter of all these people who are mentioned in the Bible who just had their act together, and just got it right, and we can look at them um, and see how like, great they did for the Lord. And I remember kind of learning about this book, and I was 16 or 17 at the time, um, and, and I asked my youth pastor, I said, is it, is it wrong for me to want to be in that chapter? I want to be better than Moses. And he's like, no, it's not wrong. And I was like, yeah. Okay. Now I think he's crazy and I think it is wrong, but that's a whole nother uh, side note. Um, but, but, but here's, here's where, where a lot of that did. I, I remember um, kind of learning those people's names. And for whatever reason, I, when, when God saved me, I was just ferocious for the Bible. Like when I got saved, I, all I want to do is just eat that thing up. And I read it and I read it and I read it and I read it. And I started to like notice something. I would hear about the way people would talk about some of these guys that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Samsons. And I hear the stories um, of, of the way they tell them. And then I'm starting to read the Bible and I'm going, these dudes are terrible human beings, okay? Um, and I'll never forget, it clicked, into, clicked uh, 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 for me when I was actually watching The Simpsons, um, okay? Just saying. Um, and I remember it was, it was an episode where Homer... Uh, he's, well, I'm not, you better know the Simpsons. Um, okay. Um, he's the dad and he was really smart. He ended up getting a crayon lodged up in his brain. Simpsons kills me. Um, so he's just really brilliant and he's reading the Bible and somebody asks him, Hey, what's that whole thing about? And he nailed it. I remember listening going, yes. He goes, I don't know. It's about a bunch of guys who are just a bunch of screw ups, except this one guy. And I was like, that's it. Like when I'm reading the Bible, I'm going, all these dudes are terrible people except this one dude, Jesus. Right. And um, it, it was it was interesting because as I'm reading it and I'm going through this, I remember that moment because um, actually one fourth of the people that are mentioned in that chapter in Hebrews 11 are from the book of Judges. Uh, let me just read even a portion of it. It's um, uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 32 in Hebrews. It says this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, um, so on and so forth. And he goes into these names. He even mentions four names that we will meet in the book of Judges. And one of the people that I want to talk about today is one of those people who, like, you're wondering, like, should he be in the book, of the, the, the uh, chapter in 11? Like, is he a good guy? Because I, as I started to see, I, I noticed, like, here's Abraham. He's, like, he at one point, like, pretends that his wife isn't his wife and lets, him, lets her go, like, be with another king. Jeremiah will not stop whining. Um, Samson, it's great because we're going to hit Samson. And you're sitting there looking at the life of Samson. You're going, this dude was awful. Like, he's like... 
he's like with a woman, he's lying. One time he's just like, let me just show you how legit I am. He takes a jawbone, just murks out a thousand dudes, and you're going, this is a good guy, okay? Uh, and, and so you're reading these stories, and one of the stories that I want to hit, we're going to go through a big portion, is the story of Gideon. And um, if you are new to, to kind of Christian culture or church culture, you'll hear some of the stories, you'll hear kind of reflections of some of the stories that are in the life of Gideon, and we're just going to go through. Gideon takes up a big portion, three chapters in the book of Judges, actually one of the largest, if not the largest person who takes up the, the, the most of it, uh, and, and so I want to spend some time, and what we're going to do is, because it's so large, we're going to read his story, um, we're just going to read chapter 6 and 7, Jim's going to go over chapter 8 next week, um, we're going to read uh, chapter 6 and 7, and I want to look um, at each like tree, remember that, you know, that saying, don't lose the forest in the trees. I want to kind of look at each portion of his life in these individual trees that we see. And then I want to zoom back out at the end of our time together and look at the whole forest. Like what is God doing in the life of Gideon? How is he in Hebrews 11? Okay. So for us to do that, let me give you a little bit of context. If you're not familiar with where we are, the book of judges takes place in a time um, after the story of a guy named Joshua basically is like God's, I don't know what you want to call him, like Ray Lewis. He rolls into town and he just obliterates everybody. And, and he, he uh, gets into this land because he was promised to all the Israelites this promised land. And as he rolls in, he sets up these 12 tribes. And Joshua kind of ends with Joshua dying. And those 12 tribes are, are set. But the, the land that they were taking him from, they, they were going in, there was Canaanites in the land. Israel moves in and kicks out those Canaanites. Now, unless you feel sorry for the Canaanites, the Canaanites were terrible, terrible people, like killing and eating children. It was a terrible situation. So don't feel too bad for them. He kicks out the Canaanites. And and here's where the book of Judges picks up. The, the, The people of Israel have these sections in Canaan and they're supposed to continue to push the Canaanites out, but they fail. And so what happens is God sets this ruler, these judges over them to help continue to push the Canaanites out. We actually uh, met two of those rulers last week. Uh, we, we saw the story of Deborah. We've met Othniel at this point. Um, if you were here last week, John led us through some, some bizarre stories, right? There's one story where a left-handed assassin, not James Harden, a left-handed assassin rolls in, stabs this dude who's so fat, the sword gets stuck in his belly, and you're going, what's this doing in the Bible, right? Um, and then there's a, the next story is this woman takes a tent peg, pins this guy Sisera down to the ground while he's sleeping and drives the tent peg through his temple into the ground, right? Nobody shares these stories with their kids nowadays. And I'm really, I feel like Titus, like Titus, you didn't clean your room? Let me read you a story of Sisera. Okay? Nobody shares these. The, the, the talking vegetables lied to us a little bit when it comes to this book. And honestly, like, so, so I, I want to I wanna go through um, the, the, the ins and outs and the realness of what happens with Gideon because Judges is super real with that. So that's kind of our context. The way that it ended, the, the way that this whole thing ended from last week was the land had rest. Uh, we actually see a whole chapter devoted to this woman who was a judge, Deborah. Um, she, she gives this song. She sings this song. She's the leader of the nation and everything is at peace. And um, what you found last week was two cycles. So here's what I mean. Can you throw up that cycle thing for me? The cycle image? When I, what I taught in the very first week was this idea that judges is based on something that takes place over and over and over again. And it's this cycle where God has rest, but man chooses sin. And in man choosing sin, God puts him into servitude. So he, he basically um, has other uh, nations come over and, and subjugate them to serve them. And from that moment, the people always cry out in supplication. And in the people crying out in supplication, God saves them 
right? So he ends up uh, uh, bringing salvation, and eventually there's silence, there's peace again. So we went through two of those cycles last week. Uh, this morning, we're just going to go through one of those cycles, and it's the judge of Gideon. Cool? Okay, if you already haven't opened your Bible, you can get there. Judges chapter 6. Let's get through this. We're going to go through two chapters, kind of like I said, looking at specific stories in the life of Gideon, then we'll zoom out and, and get what we can um, uh, from this. So first, let's start with some context. So there's rest in the land. Deborah did a great job. There's rest in the land. And then immediately, here's what we get. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we immediately go from rest, start a new cycle. The people chose sin. They chose pain. They chose to walk from God. They chose not to serve God. They chose to do something else besides follow him. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the, de- uh, the dens that are in the mountains and the caves um, and the strongholds. Verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Verse 4, they would encamp around them, uh, against them, and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkeys. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents that uh, they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste, uh, they laid waste the land as they came in, but last verse, verse 6, uh, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for the Lord, uh, cried out for help to the Lord. So we immediately are introduced to another cycle. So let me just break down what, it just, uh, what happened. The people of Israel choose sin, okay? So they said, here's the deal, God. We want to do it our way. We're, we're, we're going to choose to follow these other false gods. And God goes, hey, listen, buddy, wake up. If you don't want to wake up, and so they don't wake up, and so that cycle happens. They choose sin, and so God says, fine, I'm going to give you into the hands of the Midianites. And so the Midianites would camp in these these, uh, mountains. They would camp around the outskirts, and every time the people of Israel would grow a good amount of corn, they'd roll in, plunder the corn, roll out. Every time they'd grow good cattle, roll in, plunder the cattle, roll out. And they would just take and take and take and take. And this was their punishment. And so the people of Israel cry out to God, hey, what's the deal, God? Like, why do they keep doing this? And so this is the context. This is what's going on. Because they chose um, evil, because they chose wickedness, they cried out. Verse 7 says this, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppress you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Verse 10. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Okay. Um, let me just say something real quick about the book of Judges. Usually that cycle takes place, okay? But three times in the book of Judges, God does something kind of different. The beginning, the middle, pretty much the middle, and then towards the end, he does something different. And he goes, before I send you a new judge, let me just remind you what this whole thing is about. Let me remind you how to get out of this cycle. Let me remind you why you're in this cycle. Let me just put something in front of you. And immediately what he does is he reminds them of the fact that God has saved them. He says, before we get anywhere else, before I send you somebody to save you, let me just tell you why you're doing this, why you need to respond properly. And he puts in front of them this idea, what we would understand of grace. So, so he goes, and, and if we can uh, get into their worldview, listen to what he says. Um, uh, uh, verse, let's pick it up in verse uh, eight, middle of eight. I led you from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. So here's what God says. Before I save you, 
here's the deal, man. Here, here's what you need to know at your hearts. Remember who I am. Remember your story. Remember that I came and, and, and did what I did. Remember how I did it because I saved you. And I'm telling you not to fall for the Midianites and not to fall for the idols, not because I hate you, but because I saved you from that. And I know where that leads. The beauty of this whole thing is he's going to put in front of them, everything is based on grace. Stop sinning, not because I I hate your joy, rather because it's the only appropriate response to grace. Listen to what he says in verse 10. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall shall not fear gods of the Amorites. He gives this an imperative. This, This is what you do. Because I saved you, stop sinning. You're like a dog returning to its vomit. Stop. The, the beauty of, of this cycle, can you put that cycle back up for me, John? The beauty of this cycle is, honestly, the only part we end up playing is, is that first one, isn't it? I mean, the reality is, here's, here's what's awesome. The very first thing that takes place in God bringing rest is we choose sin. And the moment we choose sin, God immediately starts the process to bring us back to rest. Immediately. He loves you so much, he loves the Israelites so much in this moment that he's going, I'm willing to watch you suffer for seven years under the hands of Midian just to save your soul. I care about your joy more than you care about your joy. Remember what I've done. The base of everything we're going to talk about this morning and in the book of Judges is God's grace. He is unbelievably faithful. And so with that, he eventually appoints Gideon. So now we get at Gideon's story. This is how it happens in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under a terabith, which is just a tree, um, of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the um, uh, Abyssalite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then uh, has he... Has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So let's look at one of these trees real quick. Um, Gideon on this mo- in this moment is speaking for all of Israel. And here's the way that Israel is, is seeing all the suffering that they're going under the hand of Midian. They're going, God, why? If you're real, if the story of Egypt is real, then why is all this pain here? They're so blind to the fact of what we just read in verse 1 and 2. That their sin is what brought the pain. Their decision is what brought the pain. So let me just stop. Just, this may be a tangent, but I, I got to say this. Um, I got to give an apologetic for suffering for a moment because this is so lost, not just in our culture, but sometimes in our church. Um, the idea that um, we, we live among people that, that, that um, hate a God that they don't even believe is real sometimes, right? They, they hate this God um, and because the, the question on the table is how could he possibly bring pain and suffering and, 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 and death and, and all the, 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 not, the things we don't like in, in this world. And, and just, I want to speak culturally, because maybe you're not a Christian in here, um, and you would say, yeah, I, get, I do get frustrated with that fact. And let me just put something in front of you that, that might be helpful. Um, you know, you can complain all day long, and I don't want to, I'm not, this is Chris Wright uh, in his book, The God I Don't Understand, I think, says this. So this isn't my idea, but I think it's a phenomenal idea. You can complain all day long about a kid who is nine years old working in a sweatshop in India right now who gets paid a dollar a day. And you can go, why would God allow that nine-year-old kid, why doesn't he step in and do something? All the while buying the very shirts that he makes. For us to complain and shake our fists towards heaven that God does not solve the evil that we have created is crazy. It's crazy, man. To continue to blame God for the evil that we bring on this world is crazy. Now, 
to, to those of you who are Christians, okay, um, I think there needs to be a revamping of our paradigm when we think through suffering. Because here's what Gideon and the Israelites are missing. Gideon is absolutely putting the blame. God has left us. But isn't it the exact opposite? In their suffering, the Midianites oppressing them is God's grace. God has brought this suffering upon them to shake them from their stupor. Hey, buddy, wake up. Why are you, you're serving a people that dashes their babies on rocks. Why, why are you doing this? God loves them enough to wake them up with suffering. And Romans 5 couldn't be all the more clear in that moment, could it? For us as Christians to see suffering, to go every time we've gone wayward, to, to believe the lies of the world, that he's, he loves you enough to take those things away, to make you feel the weight of the world, or better yet for the Israelites, you want to serve those gods? Okay, let's see how those gods treat you. FYI, they hate you. They hate you. And so here God, in his love, brings suffering. If I could bring, put that in front of us as a church, that we are, as James 1, 3, to count it all joy. He, uh, 1 Peter 3, 17, 1 Peter 4, 17, that we are to see pain, to see suffering as God's grace to us to remind us that this world is not our home, that there's more to this world than what we see, the lies we've bought in, the worldview that tries to mix together. It's God's goodness. So Gideon blames God, says he, he has left him, but that's not the truth, is it? We know that. And so the angel um, does something pretty awesome, and, and Gideon's response is classic. Verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under, or I'm sorry, we just read that, verse 14, and the Lord turned, him, turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, almost kind of like this bob and weave weighing of saying, okay, so you're frustrated, so go in this might of yours. I don't know if that's what he's saying, but I think he's hilarious if he was. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites uh, as one man. If you can follow kind of this, this circle that's going on with Gideon, Gideon goes, why has God left us? The Lord says, no, no, Gideon, I want to use you to save you from the Midianites. And, and Gideon goes, whoa, not me. Right? There's this moment like, I hate evil. Well, then do something about it. Well. And, and so here Gideon kind of, kind of tries to, to, to avoid this. Now, now, what happens from here is God, or Gideon continues to struggle that this could actually even be God. And so there's this weird story next where um, he makes a meal, this offering for uh, the angel of the Lord. He puts it on a rock. The angel comes and touches it. Uh, it goes up in fire, and then the angel disappears. I have no idea what, what that we're supposed to do with that. Verse 25. Um, <laughs> that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bowl. So now Gideon believes. At the end of that little sacrifice deal, Gideon goes, okay, this is God. God's telling me what to do. I need to listen to him. And there's this first tact. Okay, God, is, I, I want to I restore this. I, I want to get rid of the Midianites. I want to get rid of the false gods. But where we got to start is we got to start with you, Gideon. We got to start with you. And here's what it says in verse 25. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bowl and the second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. So the, the, the question in verse 13, Gideon goes, why is God doing this? And God goes, because your house, it's at your house. It's where you live. It's not this broad, abstract evil. It's you, man. So he says, go get this grown bull, get this seven-year-old bull, get, he ends up getting ten men, and pull down this altar of Baal. 
says, cut down the Asherah, which is this mother God. So there's this Baal, and then there's this mother God uh, statue. Verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men and his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it, uh, by day, he did it by night. Okay? So the story we get is Gideon gets the bulls, he gets some men, he pulls down the Asherah, which is this, this woman, this goddess, and Baal, they pull him down. The, the goddess statue is made actually out of wood. He takes the wood, creates a fire, okay, and puts the bull on the fire. This is a crazy scene. Puts the bull on the fire, offers the bull as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, the people wake up the next day and go, what happened? Okay? Because when we went to sleep, Baal was chilling, the Asherah was chilling, She's on fire. The, there's a dead bull burnt up. What's the deal? Okay, and that's what we find out. Um, uh, verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah, this mother goddess beside it, was cut down. And the second bull was offered at the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of uh, Joash, he had done this. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. And then from that moment, Gideon's dad begins to, to um, defend Gideon and goes, hey, listen, are you going to contend for Baal? Does he need someone to contend? So, so what happens is they wake up and, and they go, what happened? Who did this? They find out it's Gideon and they want to kill him. Okay. Now here's, here's what's crazy. That, that, another tree that I want to uh, look at. I, I don't know if that's the best analogy, but before we zoom out to the forest, something that's kind of specific that we can see here that's really profound. Um, it's amazing how Israel knows the stories of, of the, the Exodus. They know the story of the Egyptians. They know their history. They know how God has rescued them. And yet at the same time, though they know that to be true, they also worship this false god. So I think Tim Keller says it perfectly. This is what he says. It's no surprise that Joash has an altar and a pole for the worshiping of the Canaanite deities. While he, while he has clearly taught his children about the exodus from Egypt and the Lord who had rescued their forefathers, he has also chosen to serve Baal and Asherah. The Israelites had not abandoned worship of the Lord for idols. They had combined the worship of God with idols. They worshipped God formally, but uh, in fact, their lives revolved around agricultural gods, if they were farmers, commerce gods, if they were businessmen, sex, beauty, all these different idols. So the idea is the Israelites are not just booting uh, Jehovah God, but they're saying, no, 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 no. We can believe in God and, and still serve these false gods. Their issue wasn't outright like rebellion. It was like meshing together. It was compromise. I think there's, there's something clearly for us to look at for a moment and go like, and that, that looks a lot closer to my life than me just raising my fist to God and saying I want nothing to do with it. So I want to continue on the story, though, because there's still a lot to go. So the men are angry. Um, at this point, just so you know, as Gideon is pulling down this bull, or uh, pulling down with bulls, uh, th this god, um, all the while the Midianites, the people who are oppressing him, are getting ready to attack again. So they're actually, um, they're, they're getting ready to surround him, and they're camping in this little valley called Jezreel. And so they're camping in this valley, waiting. The, the people find out, and Gideon has enough courage. He just went by night and, and did this. He's like, oh, fine. If they're going to hate me, then they're going to hate me. That, that, I'm good with that. They actually changed Gideon's name to uh, something that says, he who contends against Baal. And so what Gideon does is he goes on this ride to get his many people from Israel to go fight against the Midianites, okay? 
Tracking with me? A lot of interwoving stories. It's all going to come together in a moment. Um, and then we get this famous story of the fleece because here's Gideon. says, hey, listen, the, the Midianites are about to come take us, uh, take some crops again, take our, our livestock again. I want to stop them this time. God has called me to stop them. I got an army ready, but he's still like, okay. But I'm still kind of worried about how this whole thing's going to play out. And then there's this story of this fleece. Let's tell it. Verse 36. So, so a little worried, Gideon says uh, to God, if you will serve or if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor and there is a dew on and uh, dew on fleece alone and it is dry in all the ground. Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Verse 38. And it was so when he rose the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger be burned against me. Uh, let me speak just once more, please. Uh, let me just test once more with the fleece. Please let it dry on the, the, let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on the, the ground there was dew. Um, so here's what happens. Gideon goes, okay, God, I'm about to go fight a hundred thousand dudes with the guys that I have. He has 32,000 men and we're kind of outnumbered here. How can I know this is you? I know this sounds crazy, but let me fall asleep tonight. And I got this piece of wool, let's say a two foot by two foot piece of wool. I'm going to put it on the ground. And uh, tomorrow morning when I wake up, if, if it's really you who, who's, who's sending us, I'll wake up and there's going to be dew on the fleece only. The rest of the ground will be dry. So he wakes up, dew's so wet he can wring it out, he fills a bowl. Okay? He says, okay, okay, that was cool, but let's try the opposite. Okay? So, so he, he falls asleep, wakes up, and the entire floor is covered in dew except the fleece. And God's like, and, and Gideon's like, okay, let's do this. Now, this is where I've got to uh, tell a part of my story. Um, when I was about 24 years old, um, in that kind of charismatic movement, I went through this phase where I just thought if I wasn't sold out enough, like I did want to be a Christian. Like if I'm either in or I'm not in. And in my mind, um, there, you know, at this time, Candace and I are married. We just had Corbin. He was maybe not even one. We took, I took all of our furniture, all of our DVDs, everything in our house, and I put it out on the driveway and just said, if you want to give us money for it, if not, just take it. And I sold everything that we had. And I wanted to stay in the desert for a couple days because I wanted to be like John the Baptist, okay? <laughs> you laugh. It was a terrible part of my life, okay? So, so during this time, I'm trying to find out what the will of the Lord is. I'm in, man. And something I would do is I, would, I, I read the story of Gideon and I would cast lots. I would, I would cast this fleece and I would go, all right, God, if I come to this red light and it's red, you want me to turn right, okay? And sometimes I would follow this so much that I would turn like four reds, you know? Like, that was the Lord's will. He saved me from a car accident or something, you know? I'm coming up with all these crazy things. And I kept casting these fleeces. I kept trying to figure out, God, what are you telling me when? Well, um, about a year into this, um, some firefighter buddies asked me if I wanted to come hike the Grand Canyon. So I'm like, okay, cool, let's do this. And so we're going to do rim to rim, turn around, back to rim. It's about 52 miles. Um, and so I'm like... Yeah, I'll totally do this, okay? So we start in the south rim. We hike all the way up to the north rim. We're about three miles from the top of the north rim. And um, all my buddies, um, they start popping th these pills. I'm like, hey, Eric, what's that? He's like, oh, it's elevation sickness pills. When you do it at this time of night, it's like three in the morning. We started at six at night. It's about three in the morning. We're on the other side. Um, you can start to get dizzy. And I'm going, ain't nobody told me about no elevation sickness pills, okay? Because I'm like feeling nauseous. I'm like, give me one of those pills, man. He's like, no, man, I got to take it for myself. I'm like, okay. So, um, so, I say, so, so I say, all right, here's the deal. I'm about two miles from the top. I'll wait for you guys. Go to the top, and on your way back, 
will catch up, okay? So I'm watching these guys go, and if you've ever hiked the Grand Canyon, it's just kickbacks over and over and over again. Well, my buddy, Eric, was in the back, and I remember watching. They're all wearing headlights. It's pitch black in the canyon. No moonlight can get down there. And I just watched Eric's last headlight go over the kickback. And for whatever reason, when that last headlight disappeared, I lost my mind, okay? For whatever reason, I thought I was going to die. Like this, like giving up on life. I'm like, I got to get out of here. So I did, instead of sitting still... And I don't know why I did this. So I start hiking down to the bottom. I get down to the bottom. And I don't remember. I was passing this house. But there's this house there. And I'm thinking, what? There's a, there was, I don't remember this house. And for whatever reason, in my mind, there was someone in that house trying to kill me. Okay? So I unload all of my food. I, I take out my water. And I'm like, I'm just going to get out of this canyon. Now, keep in mind, I, for some reason, because I'm losing my mind, I'm popping two Advil every hour. Okay? So I'm not eating. And I'm taking these Advil. And I'm running constantly for my life, okay? So I'm getting there, and the whole time I'm casting these fleeces. God, if I see three rocks in a row, then I'm going to live. If I see a goat, if I, you know what I mean? I'm trying to like, I'm trying to figure out how to get out of here. I'm calling 911, you know? But no, there's no reception in the middle of the earth, okay? So, so I can't figure out how to get out of there. Well, I come to this fork in the road, and as I arrive at this fork, um, I cast the fleece, right? And the fleece fails me because I go to the right, and, and as I go to the right, I go about a mile and a half down, and I end up at this river, and it's a dead end. And I go, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. And I turn around. The fleece had failed me. So I'm like, fine, forget it. And I take a left, um, and I go down. And there have been about, I don't want to sound weird. If you're not a Christian here, this may sound a little bizarre. But there have been about four times in my life where I can say, man, I really felt like God speaking to me. Like, um, and I could show those stories another time, but there's times where I try to figure out, okay, what is God saying here? But I remember very specifically four times in my life where God said, bam, and I felt like this, and it wasn't audible, but I felt, that's God, like whatever he's telling me right now, that, that's God's telling me something. And this was one of those times, because as I took a left, one of the boulders had rolled down the mountain, and sitting on this boulder was this um, uh, vest, and it was 100% fleece. And I pick it up, and in the moment, I I know it may have been the 16 Advil I had taken at that point, but, but I, I, I pick up the fleece and I go, and I clearly feel like God says, stop casting fleeces and trust me, right? And then I end up getting out of the canyon, passing out on the shuttle, and end up in the hospital. It's crazy story, okay? Um, now, now, now here's, here's what's crazy. In that time in my life, I, I saw these, these fleeces as like a way to kind of control. Here's how I can know. But the book of Judges, this broad overview, seems to really push against that, doesn't it? He, he seems to not want this relationship. Here's how I do it. Here's when I'll do it. Here's how you know. I brought suffering. This is what you can know. Here's how you can know it. And we want to know everything. And that's Gideon. Here's how I can, I want to know for sure. It's our way of controlling the voice of God. So in some ways, we don't have to walk by faith. And I've been there and we see this as Gideon uh, tells us this story, or as we see the story of this fleece, this is Gideon's way of like making sure to know, to, to not walk through faith absolutely and, and crazy enough, God in his grace shows Gideon this. Well, from that moment, um, it, the, the chapter just ends, right? Chapter six just ends there and, and we move into chapter seven. Now, here's what I want to do. The story of Gideon is chapter six, seven, and eight, okay? Um, chapter six seems to lean into the fact that Gideon um, was kind of like, a, a, like weak, like he's doubting, he's wondering. He, he, he at one point it says, I'm the lowest in my clan and my clan is the lowest. Like I, I'm not to be used by God. And, and, then, and then what we're going to find out is God eventually uses um, some of that mentality but shows him how God is in all of chapter seven. And chapter seven is the battle, okay? And I believe chapter seven is the perfect example of why Gideon is in chapter uh, 11 of Hebrews. Why Gideon lands there? Because we see actually chapter 11 
the people of Israel and Gideon get it right. And that's very few and far between in, in Judges. So here's chapter 7. This is what it says. Gideon casts the fleece. He knows that God is to, to save him. And it says this. Uh, then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, that's the name they changed him to. So Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the, the camp of, of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into uh, their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my hand has saved me. Verse 3, now therefore proclaim in the ears of all the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 um, of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So remember when the, the Midianites were camping and Gideon did that whole circuit ride to get a bunch of so soldiers? He got 32,000 men. God looks down and goes, okay, I want you to live by faith, bro. So here's what I'm going to do. I want you to throw out this offer of the 32,000 people who are scared and afraid, who want to go home, let them go home. And Gideon's like, okay, yeah, we'll try it. And, and his heart sinks when 22,000 people go home. And he's going, dear God, we're all going to die, okay? Because now there's 10,000 people left. They're about to face 100,000 people. The odds went from 3 to 10 for, to 1 to 10, and it's not looking good. Well, it gets worse because then this happens. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. If anyone, of, uh, 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 if anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog, and one who set, uh, shall set by himself, and likewise everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lap, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. So let me just stop there real quick. So here's what God says. You still got 10,000 dudes. That's too many. I want to show you how legit I am. I want to flex in this moment to show you how great I am. I want to get rid of some of those 10,000 people. So here's what we're going to do. Take those 10,000 people, have them circle this body of water. Every man you see taking water up in his hands and drinking it, I want him to come with us to battle. But everyone who kneels down on their hands and knees and drinks straight from the brook, deuces. Okay? And so here's, here's Gideon going, dear Lord, let everyone wash their hands and use their hands to drink because we're going to die. Okay? And so the, the general comes back and goes, all right, Gideon, there's, there's about 9,700 to 300. And he's thinking, cool, we only lost 300. And he's like, no, 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 we're losing 9,700. Okay? And so now there's 300 men, and Gideon's losing his mind. Okay? So he watches Gerard, how Gerard Butler does it. He's got his 300 men, and so they, they go off to battle. And so um, what happens in this moment is that the... the um, well, actually, let's just keep reading the text because we're about halfway through that. So there's 300 men, but the rest of the people knelt down. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Gideon, with 300 men who lapped, um, I will save and give you the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man his way. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he uh, set all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of uh, Midian was below him in the valley. Now Gideon's still doubting. He's, at, well, still doubting. At this point, he's going, 300 men ain't taking out 100,000. So um, he sneaks over to the Midian campsite and he goes, God, I, I need some courage here. And there's two guards. They don't see him. And, and these guards are talking. One of the guards goes, hey, um, I had a dream last night. It was really crazy. But there was this like flower cake and it rolled down over, uh, down the valley over our camp and just ate us all up. And one of the soldiers goes, dude, there's this guy Gideon. I think that's him. Like this really like, and Gideon's going, yeah, okay. <laughs> So here's, he immediately runs back to the camp and goes, hey guys, 
wake up, we're having some cake, let's roll. And so he, he gets them all together, 300 men, and this is what he says to them. Arise, the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And, he's the, and he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands and all of them of empty jars with torches inside the jars. So no swords, they got trumpets, jars, and fire. Verse 17, and he said to them, look at me, do and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all. So Gideon, this is verse 19. So Gideon and all the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were with them in their hands. Verse 20. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars they had in their left hands and the torches and in their right hands the trumpets blew. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every, every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his own comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittai, uh, towards Zephrah, and as far as the border of Apple, you know. Okay, so, so they spread out. So here's, here's the, the gist of, uh, of what happens. Gideon breaks them up into three companies. They surround that valley that they're in. Okay, and he says, watch me, do what I do. They smash this jar, they raise this torch, they blow this trumpet, and they say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And they're watching these 10,000 men. It's the middle of the night. Um, they get up and they just start stabbing each other. And you're going, what? What is happening right now? Camels are running over each other and they're just killing each other. And the people, of, like the 300 men are going, Oh, okay, okay, and they're like just, and they just kill each other. Not one Israelite stabs them. There's not, none of this. They just, God just does it. And you're going, what on earth? Now here, here's the success in this. There's absolutely, absolutely no fame Gideon or any of his hoods could get. Like at, this story exemplifies what God wants the book of Judges actually to be about. That the people of Israel would just trust me. I'll take care of it. If you would just trust me and live by faith, I promise I'll take care of it. But it doesn't make sense to him, right? I mean, he questions. So here's, here's where I want to finish. Um, I said we're only going to go over the two chapters, and, and that's the, the end of the seventh chapter. At that point, uh, Gideon sends word to, to the rest of Israel to tell them to come and look what God has done, and it's this, this great story. Well, what we, you come to find out in chapter 8 is Gideon kind of takes a turn, and Jim's going to break this down next week. Um, but Gideon kind of goes from this place that of, uh, of kind of meek and mildness, really wondering who God is, to this really vengeful figure. He ends up seeing how B.A. he is, and so he ends up wanting to take the sword. He ends up killing some of his own men. He ends up setting up his own ephod, and, and the people whore after it. He, he thinks he is awesome. And, and I think um, this is a really beautiful story of how we get caught in that cycle. Like, as we zoom out, so let's zoom out and look at the whole um, mosaic picture, the whole forest of what God is telling us in the life of Gideon. Because on one side, here is Gideon keeping his eyes on Gideon. Gideon cannot see what God can do because Gideon is too weak. Listen to me. I don't care what your story is. I'll forget what I, I... God does not look at you and go, you sinned so far in that direction, I could never reach you. Your life is such a mess, I could never reach you. Hear me when I say this. From someone who was born of drug addict parents, should have been aborted, is standing here telling you, listen to me, you could not go far enough. His grace is bigger. His grace is better. No matter how weak you think you are, no matter if you're from the smallest clan and then the smallest person in that clan, Jehovah God is big enough. 
But then, then we have this story of success. And right after the story of success, Gideon starts to believe his own hype. And, and Gideon keeps his eyes on Gideon. So he beats his own chest because he's getting it right, because his church attendance is perfect, because he reads his Bible, because he prays, he knows how to worship. He uses terms like mission. Like the idea that, that somehow Gideon knows how to get it right, he loses sight of God. And, and here's what's beautiful about all of this, as, as it's laid in front of uh, a guy named David Bellman, gives the perfect account um, of, of the story of Gideon and how we can see it. I, I was one of the guys who got to sit in a room for eight hours as we talked through the book of Judges. He's a scholar, specifically in the book of Judges. This is what he says. The narrative of Gideon is one of the largest chunks of material in Judges, and it stands at the literary center of the book. We cannot trace all the details of these stories, but it might be helpful to observe the character of Gideon and how his character changes over the course of Judges 6 through 8. Gideon transforms from a hesitant leader, full of doubt and fear, to an increasingly bold, power-hungry, and vengeful individual. So we read the story of Gideon, and he ends up in Hebrews 11. The reason Gideon is so important for us to read the book of Judges is because Gideon needs Jesus. Gideon, whether how far he is, no matter how much he thinks he is weak, needs to keep his eyes on the fact that it's not him who has done it. He needs to be reminded of a big God. Gideon needs Jesus. And at the same time, Gideon is not too big that he doesn't need Jesus. He needs to be reminded that it wasn't about him. He needs to remember the gospel. Now, what's crazy about Gideon is Jesus doesn't come for thousands of years. So he has to look forward to this Messiah who's going to save him. He has to keep his eyes on the fact that God is moving somewhere, that God is doing something. Guys, there's no difference. We're just looking back. God saved me. I don't care what kind of life I've lived. God saved me. I remember Titus was three years old, and um, we were wrestle fighting. And, and when I wrestle my boys, we wrestle, okay? And so um, Titus was, was three, and, and uh, Corbin was five, and we're wrestling, we're wrestling, we're throwing each other. And I remember very specifically, um, Titus kept saying, I'm on daddy's team. And Corbin would look at Titus, no, you're not. You're not on daddy's team. You're not on daddy's team. And Titus is losing his mind. No, I'm on daddy's team. I'm on daddy's team. No, I'm on daddy's team. And, I, and, and I'm pushing him around, right? I'm pushing Corbin back. Corbin continues to tell Titus, no, you're not on daddy's team. You're not on daddy's team. And I look at Titus and go, buddy, listen. I decide who's on my team. You're on daddy's team. No matter what he says, no matter what he has told you, I know that sounds so corny, but man, you're on daddy's team. Like he, he, he's going to be big. He's going to flex his muscles. It's not about your strength. It's not about you getting it right. He's not looking for some future vis, uh, uh, version of you. Well, when they get their act together, when they stop looking at that, then I'll take them in. No, God was big. God is big. He will be big. He'll continue to show himself how big he is. And because of that, you can go, yeah, all right, I trust him. No matter how far I've been, I trust him. And that humbles us on the other side, doesn't it? That humbles us. So, so whether it be in, in Gideon's weakness, he needs Jesus. Whether it be in Gideon's success, he needs Jesus. Whether it be in Gideon's strength, he needs Jesus. This is what Gideon can show us. We can look at Gideon as a great example of someone who is in process, who sometimes gets it right, sometimes messes it up. That's all of our story, man. May we see Jesus' beauty, God's grace, God's sovereignty, and being unbelievably faithful in the life of Gideon. Let's pray.